green today. Certainly can't wear blue. Any color of blue. Has nothing to do with last night. This uh, Tuesday is St. Patrick's Day and the 36th anniversary of my first date with my first wife. Still married to her, just to be clear. Well, if the mission of the church, if the mission of the church, and therefore the mission of every follower of Christ is to make disciples of Jesus, then I would suggest that everything that we do should somehow be motivated by the gospel. Yes, of course, everything we do should ultimately bring glory to God, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do uh, for the glory of God. But one of the ways, perhaps the best way to bring him glory is to bring him more followers, to gather more worshipers around his throne. That is the mission. And so everything we do should be motivated by the gospel, making it both available and attractive. And both of those words are important, available and attractive. Uh, available means people have the opportunity to, to hear the gospel. And that's what Jesus commanded us to do, to, to take the good news uh, of his work on the cross to the ends of the earth. That is, after all, what missions is all about, taking the gospel to people who have not heard, to see them trust in Christ, plant churches, which allows them then to be involved in the mission, making disciples. So we make the gospel available by, by sharing it with those around us, whether here or around the world. But we also make it attractive. We make the gospel attractive by letting people see the gospel. So they both hear and see it. And I, I think some people have forgotten the seeing part. They may be sharing the good news, but they do so in most offensive ways. Now, it is true that the gospel itself is offensive. After all, it's called the rock of offense. Why? Because people must stumble on it. In fact, they must be crushed by it. You see, the gospel contains the truth that all are sinners and in need of salvation. They have rebelled against a holy God and are in need, in need of appeasing his wrath, which is rightly poised against him. And, and people generally just don't, they, they don't like that. And, and the further offensive truth is that is there is nothing that they can do to avert his wrath or absolve their guilt. Nothing. You're in deep trouble. But, but, but now enter the good news. Because we could do nothing about our deplorable condition, God stepped in and did what we could not do. He did it for us because of his great love while we were still sinners. God sent his very own son to die for us. And, and so there is some inherent bad news that, that does come with the good news. And, and, and certainly our proclamation of the gospel includes the need of the gospel. Listen, people are sinners. And, and many have tried to remove the offense of the gospel. I mean, people don't like that. It kind of turns them off. So, hey, Jesus loves you. Or... Well, why don't you believe in him and he'll make your life so much 
better? And they respond, uh, of course, well, no thanks, my life is just fine without him. No, it isn't. Without him, you were still in your sin and you were bound for a Christless eternal punishment. I, I've said it this way many times before. For there to be good news, there must first be bad news. Okay, so, so we get that. But, but our job is not to be offensive as the messengers. Our job is, in fact, to be attractive, to draw people to the good news of what Jesus has done. And, and so, for example, Jesus says some things like this. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I want you to be good. And Peter picked up on that theme and, and wrote, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, that is, unbelievers, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers and slander Christians as evildoers, they have always done. I mean, from the very earliest days. I mean, did you know that Christians, for example, they've always been accused of awful things. For example, they were accused of being cannibals. Yeah, Christians, because they ate the body and blood of Jesus. They were accused of sacrificing and eating their own children. After all, what else do they do in those secret meetings? They just made it up. And they, they, they were accused of subversion because they would not worship the emperor. On and on it goes. But, but Peter says, I want you to keep your behavior excellent so that even though they slander you, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Glorify God on the day that he visits them with salvation. In the very next chapter of 1 Peter, Peter said to women who were married to, found themselves married to unbelieving husbands, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, that is, even if they are unbelievers, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So, so, so wives, I want, you to, I want you to have good behavior before those unbelieving husbands. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians Nine, I, I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means, I just want to save some. And so it has always been our goal. It has always been the Christian goal to be attractive, to be attracting, and to be appealing. In the early days of Christianity, even those who opposed it were forced to admit that Christians were we're different. Didn't say weird. I said different in a good way. For example, listen to the words of Emperor Julian. He was, he was actually known as Julian the Apostate because Christianity had gotten hold of the, of the Roman Empire. And he wants to bring back the, the Roman gods. And, and he writes this letter expressing his disgust with Christianity. Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. And then through their care in the burial of the dead, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew, and he means Christian Jew, not a single Christian Jew who's a beggar. And that the godless Galileans, again Christians, these, these 
godless, godless to him because they didn't accept the Roman gods, these godless Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Christians are supposed to be attractive for the good of the gospel. This, by the way, has, has been a, a, a theme that we've seen throughout our study in Paul's first letter to Timothy. Consider some verses that we have already studied. In, in chapter 2, for example, it says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that, you pray, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Why? Well, but this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to lead quiet lives of godliness and dignity so that with such behavior, people will see that, they'll be drawn to it, they'll be saved as they come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice, their behavior, our behavior will never save anybody, but it paves the way for the truth of the gospel, which alone saves. In chapter 3, Paul said, both elders and deacons must be above reproach. And that it was important for elders to, to have a good reputation with those outside the church. In chapter 5, he said, Paul said, taking care of your own widows is a way for you to be above reproach. And so now we get to chapter 6. This thread is continuing. And we read these words in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that... The name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but, but serve them all the more because those who, are, those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and, and preach these principles. And you go, oh boy, here, here we go again. It's another one of those slavery passages, another Another one of those passages that proves that the Bible is an immoral and outdated book because it supports slavery. And if we focus on slavery in this text, we will miss the point of the text altogether. Before you know it, we'll be talking about slavery, that, we, that, that terrible blight on our nation's history and, and African slavery. And make no mistake about it, it was a terrible, awful thing. It was a terrible blight. And, then we'll go from there and start talking about racism, which, again, is terrible and, and awful. And before you know it, we'll end up in Ferguson. The truth is we have talked about slavery in, in recent years. You see, as we go verse by verse through the New Testament, we find there are lots of verses where writers address slaves and, and masters. And this presents no small challenge to us. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter Number seven, which we already covered, it basically says if you were a slave when you became a Christian, don't worry about it. Remain as you are. Sure, if you can gain your freedom, do that, but you are free in the Lord. Isn't that special? And then we got to the prison epistles. You know those letters that Paul wrote while he himself was in shackles. And he, he talks a lot then about slavery. In Ephesians, he said things like this. Slaves, obey your masters with fear and trembling. That's nice. And masters, be nice to your slaves. Are you kidding me? 
And then in Colossians, Paul said, slaves, obey your masters, not just when they're watching, but when they're not, because remember, it's ultimately Christ you're serving. And, and, and masters, grant justice and fairness to your slaves, because you too have a master. His name is it's Jesus. In other words, masters, he's telling them, be, be nice again. And then we got the Philemon. Oh, my goodness, the whole letter was written by Paul to slave owner. Slave owner, Philemon, telling him to receive runaway slave Onesimus back. What? I've said it this way before. Paul was not a slave runner. He ran slaves back to their masters. There's no small problem. True, he told Philemon to receive him back as more than a slave, as a brother, since Onesimus had become a a Christian, and we still have Titus and 1 Peter to go, both of which talk about slavery. So what are we to do? I mean, I could get sidetracked this morning and talk about the, about the evil of one person owning another, and it is indeed evil. I could, I could remind you that slavery during the Roman times was nothing like slavery in the U.S. because it had absolutely nothing to do with race. I could tell you that it is estimated that as much as one-third of the Roman population, as many as 60 million people were slaves, and it, it was upon this that the economy was built. I could tell you that slaves held many different positions in society. They just were not the menial laborers, but they, they held the up to even the highest positions of the day. Many of them were well-educated. I can make the very provocative statement that many sold themselves into slavery for economic reasons because here's the provocative part. Slavery was actually good for them and that it provided for their needs. I could tell you that many slaves became part of their master's families. I could remind you that most slaves, in fact, expected to be freed in their lifetime. And in their lifetimes, in fact, that it became such a problem that an emperor had to pass an edict that says, don't free them before they're 30. They're causing an economic burden. And all of that is true. And I've covered it all before in great detail. But if we spend our time this morning talking about American slavery or even Roman slavery, we will miss the point of the text, which is this. Now listen up. How we behave, regardless of our station in life, has an impact on the gospel. So act right. Because it is of eternal significance. So I'm not going to cover all that this morning. I, I asked our communications director, Steve Colley, to post those written sermons on the website for you. They, I've never done that before. I actually have my text of the sermons uh, 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 right there. You can go to a tab and, and read about slavery from the Bible in and, and passages like Ephesians 6 or Colossians 3 or, or Philemon. Uh, you, can, you can actually hit the, hit the link and you can listen to it if if you want to. I reread all of those this week, and they were actually pretty good. Um, but I, I encourage you to read them if, if you want. You will find some similarities, I know, especially between Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, you're going to go, man, it's some of the same wording, plagiarism. I can't plagiarize myself. But, but for this morning, let's look briefly at the text and what it says, 
try to understand what it's saying to us because I believe that it has very pertinent application to our economic work environments. You see, while we may not be slaves and, and masters, in most cases, in most cases, we have employers and employees, bosses and bosses. In, 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 in every case, we have people in authority over us, whether they be law enforcement or professors or teacher. Everybody has someone in authority over them. So the text has most relevant present application. Now, the the outline will simply follow those two verses. In, in verse 1, slaves and unbelieving masters, verse 1, and then slaves and believing masters, verse 2. Now, as you're kind of reading along in 1 Timothy, uh, in the flow of the letter, at first glance, it kind of appears that Paul throws us a curve. This is just kind of thrown in haphazardly. He's kind of getting close to the end of the book, and he says, well, I always talk about slaves and masters. Might as well stick it in here. But actually, actually, it fits quite well here for a couple of reasons. I have been studying Paul for a lot of years now, and I have found something out about Paul. He was really, really smart. A couple of reasons this fits here. First, as I've already mentioned, it, it is a thread that runs through the book. Right behavior has an impact on the gospel to make the gospel attractive. He's going to talk about our work environment, and we're going to find that our work environment right here, wherever or wherever you find yourself, in school, or wherever it is that you find yourself. It's more than just doing what you're told. It's more than just punching a time clock, showing up so you pass the class. It's more than just collecting a paycheck or collecting a grade. It, it potentially, what you do potentially has eternal ramifications for the gospel. And, and second, he's been talking about showing honor. To, to certain groups within the church. And, and so now he reminds slaves. Slaves, you need to show honor to your masters. We remember the first group was when he addressed widows. He introduced that topic in chapter 5, verse 3. Honor widows who are widows indeed. Then he went on to the second group, elders. And he introduced that group in verse 17. Elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Now he gets to the third group, slaves and Masters, it says, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So it is all of a sudden maybe not quite as haphazard as it may appear. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there, there were lots of slaves in the Roman Empire, and he's already addressed slaves and masters when he, when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Not only that, he addressed slaves and masters in a in a nearby city when he wrote to the church at Colossae. And, and then he addressed the slavery issue when he wrote to that slave owner in the church at Colossae, that guy named Philemon. So, so everyone agrees that slavery was a big part of society in, in, in Paul's day, especially, it seems, in this area of Asia Minor. So in Ephesus, as Paul is writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, it is correct to think that the church would have been made up of, well, you know, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, citizens and freedmen, slaves and masters. They would have been worshiping side by side. You see, there was only one church in the city at that time. They had not had the opportunity to divide 
like we do over racial and socioeconomic lines. The church was one. The family was made up of slaves and masters and employers and employees, rich and rich and poor and black and white. So, so how do such different people worship together like in the same space? How do we do that? And, and further, how do we treat one another during the week? I mean, it's one thing to kind of say hey to them at, at church, but how do we treat them during the week? See, apparently this was an issue about how saved slaves, freed from the tyranny of sin but still slaves, how they were acting and it was having an impact on the gospel. And so Paul starts with all who are under the yoke as slaves. Now, you should know that's really a bit of a redundancy. All slaves were under the yoke, but perhaps Paul is, is tipping his hat. He's, he's highlighting their position. They were, I, I know that I'm talking to those of you who are under the yoke. You're, you're an enslaved. He's not dismissing it. He's not minimizing it. You're, you're, you're under the yoke. By the way, you might be interested to know that back in chapter 1, when Paul gave his Viceless, which he did often in his writings, that when you get to verse 10 of that viceless, it talks about kidnappers. And, and actually, that's not a very good translation because the word kidnappers actually talks about being a slave dealer. And so all of a sudden, it makes sense that Paul listed as one of the sins against God for which, uh, which the law highlights as, as, as being an atrocity against God is, is dealing in slaves. Nevertheless, there is something much more important than the slave trade, something much more important than slavery to consider because it will eventually go away. There is something of eternal consequence. So, slaves, regard your own masters as worthy of all honor. Obviously, the word honor there does not refer to pay or physical support like it did with widows and elders, lest it be that we pay our masters with a good, honest day's work. Regard them as worthy. Regard them as worthy of all honor. That's interesting wording. And it leaves open the possibility that they, in fact, may not be worthy. They may be lousy masters but regard them as worthy, just like maybe you work for a lousy, unethical, mean-as-a-snake boss. Regard him or her with all honor. I, 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 don't, have, I don't have to, this is welcome to the United States of America, Scott, we don't have to do that. That goes against my rights. I have the right to expect fair and just Treatment, uh, okay, that's a reasonable expectation, but regardless, treat even ungodly masters with proper respect. I, I don't, no, 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 I don't, I, don't think I, I don't think I like that. I'm not sure that's exactly what Paul is saying. Well, remember that I said that Peter is going to address slaves in the first letter that he writes, and we're going to look at it a little bit later. So why don't we just take a little sneak preview, listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, servants, be 
submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are, well, unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under, well, well, sorrows and when suffering unjustly. I don't don't think I, I like that. Don't know that I've ever read that before. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure with patience? I mean, if you're a lousy employee and you get nailed, you get what you deserve. But if when you do what is right and... And suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since God, since Christ also suffered, suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his in his steps, who, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So much for our rights. I mean, if anyone deserved to be treated rightly, it was the perfectly righteous Son of God. But he wasn't treated rightly, and that for our sakes, and he left us an example to follow in his Step, so maybe, just maybe, just for your consideration, we can be treated unjustly for the sake of unjust masters. So slaves, treat your masters with due respect. Don't cop an attitude. Don't expect special treatment just because you're a child of God. In fact, the gospel that made you a child of God is at stake. Notice. Treat them with all honor so that, here's the purpose clause, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. There's that thread running through the book. Act rightly as slaves. There's something more important than slavery here. Act rightly as slaves toward your masters. Don't give them any reason by your disrespect or your poor work ethic to speak against. The word is actually blaspheme. Don't give them any reason to blaspheme the name of God or to speak against our doctrine, which is the truth of the gospel. Live in such a way, work in such a way so as to make the gospel and our Christ attractive. Paul actually comes right out and says it in Titus. We'll get there eventually. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, don't steal, not, but showing all good faith so that they will what? Adorn, make beautiful the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect, for the grace of God has appeared and is bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking, okay, we may be in a really miserable situation, in a situation that I don't like, I don't like the people I work with, I don't like the people that I work for, and it's fine, then look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for our for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, people who are zealous for good works. Could it possibly be, I'm just suggesting, could it possibly be that God has you where he has you for the sake of the gospel? Maybe it isn't about you at all. 
slaves are to be respectful toward even unbelieving masters, working hard so as to be a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel is at stake. Oh, what, what if our masters are believers? Can we just move on? What if, I, what if I sit next to them in church? Point two, verse two, slaves and believing masters. Those who are believers, those who have believers, those slaves who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers. The implication seems to be that some slaves felt they got some kind of pass. As it, because their masters were believers. Hey, we're brothers in Christ. We sang some praise choruses yesterday together. I passed you the communion plate. I don't have to respect you as a master anymore. Right? And before you know it, that lack of respect slips into disrespect. And so Paul reminds them, you still have to respect them. Please notice that he is affirming authority. Because they're believers does not erase the fact that they are still your masters. In fact, you should serve them, respect them all the more, even more, because they're believers. Because those who partake of your respect and your hard work are believers. And since they are believers, he says they are, they are family and therefore beloved. Beloved by who? Beloved by God and therefore by you. Far from decreasing the requirement to respect them, the obligation to respect and work hard is actually increased if you work for a Christian boss. Timothy teaches and preaches these principles. Summary statement that Paul uses whenever he's getting ready to close the topic and move on to a new one, which we're going to take up next week when he nails the false teachers again. Can't wait. So how do we, how do we apply this text? How do we apply these verses? These preach and teach, that's what I'm doing. How do we apply these principles to us today? I mean, though I may sometimes feel like it, I'm not actually a slave. I'm an employee or maybe an employer. And, and we do have labor laws, right, that protect our rights as employees. So what then does this mean for us? As I suggested earlier, uh, these verses do, in fact, speak to our work environment, our economic situation as employees. And, and regardless of your station in life, every one of us have people in authority over us. So let's look at a couple of principles as we close. First, for those of you who work for unbelievers, you have managers, you have supervisors or owners who are unbelievers. Maybe, just maybe, I don't know, just saying, maybe even every once in a while they act like unbelievers and treat you a little unjustly, unfairly, inequitably. What then? This is so difficult for us because we live in a society with labor laws to protect the rights of the workers. And not only that, how easy it is for us to just change jobs, right? Don't like it? I can just move on. And how easy it is for us to stand around the proverbial water cooler and bash the boss with our co-workers. But Paul's admonition to us is to regard them as worthy of all honor and respect. Why? Because the name of our God and the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. You are in a unique position to live attractively and proclaim verbally the gospel right where you are. That might be why God has you there. 
can leave. Yeah. You can. Even if mistreated like Jesus was, we have the opportunity to do good works, even at work, to make the gospel attractive. And our respectful work earns us the right to be heard, to speak the gospel. They can see the gospel, and then they can hear the gospel. By being disrespectful, even to unworthy bosses, we do damage to the name of God and his gospel. So, as I have often said before, Christians ought to be the hardest workers. I did not say the most trained, the most skilled, or even necessarily the most, uh, even the best. You have to play the hand that you're dealt. But Christians should be the hardest, and now we see the most respectful workers around. Finally, what if we have Christian bosses? Christian managers, supervisors, owners. Then we should work that much harder. You see, this has particular relevance since we live in the Bible Belt South where so many of you work for Christian bosses. They're running around everywhere. And since so many of you work at Samaritan's Purse. Now, may come as a bit of a surprise to some of you, but Samaritan's Purse is not heaven on earth, nor is Franklin Jesus. But as far as it lies with you, regardless of whether or not you work at SP or ASU or the hospital, big three employers, if you have Christian bosses, you should work that much harder showing that much more respect. You say, well, sometimes my Christian boss doesn't act like a Christian boss. Well, sometimes you don't act like a Christian employee either. And Paul is not talking to your Christian boss today. He's talking to Christian you. Respect them. Work harder. Because your brother or sister in Christ benefits from your respectful hard work. And then the gospel of Jesus Christ is held high. And the name of our God is not blasphemed. It is glorified. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we live in the U.S., and it is so hard for us sometimes to draw a line between our U.S. freedoms and rights and well, what the Scripture expects of us. The scripture expects us to be hard workers for the sake of the gospel and your name. And, and so my, my prayer would be that you would help us to think right now of, of people to whom we are accountable, those in authority over us, whether they be bosses or professors or teachers or whatever, parents, governmental workers, we owe them honor, all honor for the sake of Jesus.